So let's all center ourselves, like let's prepare kind of for the moment, uh, take a few seconds out to like, you know, uh, evict all the air from your core, you know, and kind of get yourself in a place where you're centered. Maybe there's anxieties in your life, um, which is normal, challenges, let's try to kind of pull away from those for a minute and like center ourselves for Allah. So yesterday, alhamdulillah, we, we began uh, some of the principles that are found in the text written by Ahmed Zarouk. Sheikh Ahmed Zarouk, he's a 9th century scholar from Morocco. He dies in Libya and Misrata. Um, and he's at a time where there's a lot of divergence in the sciences because of the complexities, uh, whether good or bad, that had entered into the Muslim world. So what he tries to do is realign uh, the science of Ihsan, to worship Allah as though you see Him, with the foundations of Islam. And at the same time, scaffolding it based on the foundational principles of Islam. What does that mean? A foundational principle, for example, is harm should be removed. Al-Dararu yuzalu. It's one of our foundational principles. We talked about it in the last seminar. That impacts so many things, right? Issues like abortion, issues like environmental resilience, Issues like diet, all those kind of things, harm is removed, can be implicitly impacted by Islam from your own personal perspective. So, like, why would I go zero waste? Well, not being zero waste is impacting the environment in a way that's harming it. Well, a Muslim is someone who tries to remove harm. You can see how this goes. Uh, in medical and bioethics, these kind of principles are invoked a lot. Uh, in people's answers and responses. So, Sheikh Ahmed Zorouk is trying to like realign Tasawwuf with what are called the foundational principles. If you are not aware of what those are, on Facebook Live, I think a month and a half ago, I did a seminar on these principles to, to lead into this discussion. Um, so, for example, if he saw spiritual abuse happening, which was rampant in his time, he, he would bring in the idea of harm is removed and then he would check spiritual guides or spiritual leaders who had abused their power so he's now rooting the idea of a teacher a teacher shouldn't harm you uh, in, in a foundational principle the other thing that he tried to do and he did it very well is to root we call ta'seed to root tasawwuf within the evidences of sharia so there's two things that are happening in the text. Al-bina wa ta'seed. To scaffold the sharia on its, uh, to sow off on its foundational principles, and then to make sure that those principles and actions are supported by adillah, by evidences. So it's actually a very powerful undertaking. And the reason that he did that, we set up for a number of things. Number one is to... Uh, refute bid'ah, to deal with like innovation. And we talked about yesterday what innovation means. Either to be beyond what the Prophet asked, or to be neg negligent of what the Prophet asks, and then to claim that that's orthodoxy, or to claim that that's sunnah. So on one hand, you'd have like ISIS, it's like killing people, harming people, uh, destroying mosques, knocking down libraries, in the name of religion. It's going beyond 
asking Muslims like their, their faith. And if they had like a subtle disagreement with them, they would kill them. That's incredibly insane. That's why one of the, the political philosophies of ISIS is what's called Tatir al-Ard, is to purify the earth of deviant Muslims. And they felt that in order for Allah's victory to come, we have to slay these people or force them to repent. And this also is what justified in the early days of the Saudi uh, political experiment. You should look up historically the attack on Medina and the murdering of Muslims. Uh, the slaughter in Ta'if uh, that happened around 150 years ago, right? This was used, unfortunately, to justify killing people. The Prophet ﷺ didn't go around and ask people like, hey, what's your iman? What do you believe in? People said, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. Okay. That's why Sayyidina Umar said, Nahnu wa qawmu nahkum ala zahir wa natruku sarair. Like we're people who go off what people do and we leave their internal secrets to God. So to go beyond that, to start to like go into people's hearts and judge their faith and iman um, based on an assumption or based on a small difference would be to go beyond the sunnah. So now we see Salafis and Sufis, they hate each other based on issues of ijtihad, which scholars are always very open about. This is a bid'ah, because it's dividing the community, it's weakening the community. And all of us, especially converts, I mean, we've got to navigate sometimes these things like, oh, I thought everybody was Muslim. No, there's like this Muslim, and there's this Muslim, and there's a bad Muslim, there's a good Muslim. Allah warns us about dividing the community. On the other end is to be, you know, uh, intentionally negligent of Islam, the foundations of Islam. So to, so to say, like, you know, we don't need to pray. So one would be, let's pray 50 times. The other would be, let's not pray. Ahmad Zuruk is worried about this imbalance. And he, he does something that's remarkable. He sees Islam as a centering entity. It centers people. And that's why the discussion starts with al-afiyah, wellness. And the Prophet ﷺ, he said, like, خَيْرُ أُمُورِ The best of affairs are those that are balanced. And we defined yesterday balance as being Prophet's practice, as well as even in difference, differences, like referring to kind of mainstream scholarship staying away from the fringes. We'll talk about that perhaps later today. So the first reason for writing the text is to rein in the extravagance and negligence of pseudo-Sufis. And you see this till, till today. Like I saw recently someone showed me like a clip on YouTube. There's this guy in a Muslim country. He's like taking a sword and pushing it through his cheek and then pulling it out on the other side. He's like, you know, I'm a wali of God. So they're like, there's no blood. <laughs> like, what does that have to do with anything? Like, and then people were saying, like, wow, you're so pious. Like, you know, I know, like, before I became Muslim, if someone told me I had to shove a sword in my cheek to be, like, validated as a good Muslim, I would not be Muslim right now. So Sidi Zarouk is concerned with that kind of stuff. On the other end, in America, we're faced with kind of the onslaught of neoliberalism which makes it fashionable to have no orthodoxy. And, and that's 
rooted in kind of a post-Hellenistic understanding of the world, barbarianism. So there's nothing sacred left. So Ahmed Zarouk is worried about irrational understandings of the sacred and then irresponsible neglect of the sacred. And he sees Islam as that centering force. The second thing uh, that he's concerned about is, and I mentioned it earlier, is like the problem of spiritual abuse. Taking on power and authority. So Imam Shatabi, the great scholar, was asked, um, he asked a question to one of the great scholars of Granada, Andalus. Is it an obligation for someone to have like a sheikh, a murshid? A sheikh of Tariqa. And he wrote back and he said, as for, and this is in the 8th century, 9th century, same time period. He said, as for having a sheikh of Tariqa, falaysa bi wajibin. That's not an obligation. And he said, that wasn't the way of the Salaf. That wasn't the way of the early scholars. He said, and the early people. But the early generations, they had a teacher who taught them the foundations of deen. And then people scaffold their lives on those foundations. If, for example, if you have a sheikh of tariqah and he dies today, may Allah extend his life, and the whole tariqah is gone tomorrow, what's left for you is Qur'an and Sunnah. So, for example, my teacher in Senegal, we don't have tariqah, we have Qur'an. And that's why, subhanAllah, one of my teachers in Egypt, Sheikh Ali Saleh, his wife was blind, she made khatam of Qur'an three times a week. And she was blind. Because she considered, we can't do that, don't worry, we're trying to run hedge funds, man. But, but she, she considered that her murshid. So Sheikh Zoruk is worried about the lack of pride. Like when I see a convert who can read the burda and can't read Qur'an. And they'll be excited about the words of Imam al-Busayri, rahimahullah, more than kitabullah. That imbalance is concerning to him. Because the early generations were generations of Qur'an. The fada'il of the Qur'an. When the Prophet said, خَيْرُكُمْ مَنْ تَعَلَّمَ الْقُرْآنَ وَعَلَّمَ The best of you are the people of Qur'an. And the Prophet said, Allah has chosen friends. And they said, Manhum Ya Rasulullah. Who are those people? He said, Ahlullah, Ahlul Quran. The people of God are the people of Quran. So the third thing that he's concerned about is the imbalance in the pedagogy of Islam. That now people begin to live vicariously through others. Instead of, as Allah says in the Qur'an, وَلَا تَزِيرُ وَزِيرَةٌ وَزِيرَةٌ أُخْرَى I'm responsible for myself. That doesn't mean also that like, you know, in some post-neo-enlightenment flip-out session, I reject everything. No, no. Scholars, and I say this to imams in America, you're like tech support, man. People call you sometimes, they have some issues. But the majority of our days, the majority of our time, and we'll talk about this later today, who is responsible for you? You're responsible for yourself. So Sheikh is worried that the over-reliance on things that early generations did not consider as priorities creates an unhealthy relationship with faith, 
that undermines a person to live autonomously as a Muslim. Those sound like anonyms. But meaning, for example, Abu Hassan al-Nadwi said that the Prophet his generals, he gave them very few orders. He didn't inundate them with commands. Why would he do that? Number one is, he trusts their ability to be generals. And number two is, they need to be responsible for themselves. Alayhi salatu wasalam. So his third concern is like the imbalance and focus on things which are not as important, especially revelation. So he tries to seal at the sawf, to root the sawf with its foundations. My, my teacher uh, from Senegal, his father, his grandfather was the mufti of Senegal, like 100 years ago. And he told me people would always come to him and they would want to study this subject and that subject and this subject and that subject and like, it'd be really difficult. And then he would always ask him like, how is your recitation of the Quran? And they would say to him like, we don't know how to read the Quran. He said, That we should start with the Quran. We should begin with what God began with. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala began his relationship with Sayyidina Muhammad with what? So the third is realigning the priorities of the Islamic pedagogy and giving priority to revelation. Quran. The fourth, and this is also important, I didn't mention this yesterday, is opening up a relationship with God for everybody. At that time, you know, it was considered like only special people could have this relationship with God. Like you find sometimes Muslims themselves, they feel bad. But like, mashallah, he, he talks about this in his text, like, no matter who you are, there is a certain level of relationship and a special bond you have with your Creator. Today, subhanAllah, uh, I ride the R train, so mashallah ta'ala. It's like small world of Disneyland. It's like so slow, mashallah. And I um, got on the train, and there was this guy who was still sleeping, you know, on one of the, the seating areas. And he, like, took the whole thing. And this brother had some big feet. Man. So I just sat next to him because no one would sit there. And then suddenly I swear this happened. He woke up and he's like, I'm really sorry, man. Like, I didn't know it was this late. I said, no, you're good. Like, handle your business, man. And then he was like, Al-Anbiya wal-Mala'ika. I was like, what? And he's like, As-Salaamu Alaikum. And I was like, man, what's in my coffee? That's not almond milk. And then I realized, like, he's a Muslim brother. And we had this conversation. And it was like, even though he was, like, coming from some challenges, just the fact that we saw each other, he had like hope in God. Man. I don't know how to explain it. Like, he was like, please give my salam to the people, man. You know, ask them to make dua for me. Like just, he still has that special like passion that moves in the hearts of somebody. The Sheikh is worried that when we've constructed a pedagogy that puts people in identity before revelation, then you restrict the access to God because what if I don't vibe with those people? Which is normal. 
what if the only way to God in town is like this person? But I don't really vibe with that person. Whereas Allah says to the Prophet alayhi salatu salam to say, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسِ إِنِّي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ إِلَيْكُمْ جَمِيعًا Oh people, I'm the messenger of God to everybody. And Allah says, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا كَافَةً لِلنَّاسِ We sent you for everyone. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So the Shaykh now wants to expand the door of having that relationship with God that the Prophet opened because amongst the Prophet are righteous people, people who struggle, right? People in the middle, artisans, civil servants, people involved in farming, scholars, saints. That's the Prophet's community. The Prophet's community was not monolithic. So he's worried that the construction of spirituality in his time has been restricted only to what would be called the Sufis. And he says, no. Islamic spirituality is bigger than human constructions. So that means there's a place for the sinner. So you can see the genius of the Shaykh. Because in some ways now he's not acting as a scholar or as a, a righteous figure. He's acting as a minister, as a pastor. He cares for people. So the, the, the later part of today, he begins to expand the notion of who's righteous. So, for example, someone who makes small steps in leaving sin to give back to God, that's righteousness. As is the person who avoids the disliked and observes all the sunnah and prays all the wajib and does everything they're commanded, that's also righteousness. So the shaykh, he frames it where it's wide. It's not just a special group. You think about it now today in the age of identity politics, right? Someone should do a study how identity politics has affected religious communities. Has anyone ever here been asked to leave a mosque in Israel? Or to leave a sacred space? Or felt intimidated? Man, that stuff sucks, man. I, I came to find God and you were, like it happens to me when I first converted. I wasn't all red, man. I'm in the masjid, you know, flamed up. And this brother's like, you know, brother, I don't think you can be here because, like, this place is for people like you. And I was like, people like me? What do you mean by that? He's like, well, you know. I was like, no, I don't know. What, what does that mean? Like, I'm here to pray Asr. So being, like, pushed in those ways spiritually by a community that claims to be a community of mercy and peace can perhaps be one of the most destabilizing events in life of a person. How many people come to religious institutions within the Muslim community before they even walk in, they're worried about how they'll be judged? And that's intimidation. So the Sheikh, he opens up the path. Yes? Just touching on that point, it's more of a personal anecdote. I think it was like two years ago, I walked into a masjid wearing a red shirt, and my brother wearing like a big beard looks very religious, telling me that, hey, the prophet didn't like the color red on men, something to that effect. And literally, like, because I've been going to that masjid, it wasn't necessarily an issue where I have at least some degree of looking at secret stuff or traditional Islamic sources for what's kind of correct or not, but 
10 years ago, that could have been a problem where if you don't necessarily have access to certain opinions, like you could be very much intimidated by someone who looks like him. Just an anecdote as to kind of the importance of these kinds of sessions so you feel empowered to push back against that nonsense. And we'll talk about how he does it. So what we're going to discuss today are first some theoretical issues that are a little heavy. Um, and then we'll move into some of the ideas of expanding the horizons of relationship with God for people. And then talk about towards the end, kind of where we left off last night, what are some individual traits uh, that we can work on? I mean, the text has around 220 principles, so we're not going to go through all of them. Um, but, mashallah, I, I feel that his approach is like really important. And even for people in the academy, um, it's, it's, it's telling that a tremendous amount of intolerance exists in the academy. Especially liberal academy, right? In the name of tolerance, people tend to be extremely intolerant. So, he'll start in the beginning talking about the plausibility of ideas. And then he goes into the foundation of what is Tasawwuf. And then he takes it into that expansive idea of who can be a seeker of God. And then towards the end, we'll talk about some specific qualities that, that we can have. Before we jump in that, we need to review quickly what we said yesterday also about Tasawwuf being rooted in the sacred law. Sometimes people have a problem with the soul. They say, I want to call it Tazkiyah. Okay, call it Tazkiyah, purification of the soul. I want to call it Suluk, right, on the path. It doesn't matter. We, Sheikh will touch on this later on, but we have a very important principle that says, Al-ibratu bil-ma'ani laysa bil-asma. Al-ibra, concern, bil-ma'ani, is with meaning. Laysa bil-asma, not what you call something. So sometimes people will be like, yo, this word to solve, like the Prophet never used it, stuff Allah You can ask them, God bless you, and be nice and concerning. You can say, well, did the Prophet ever use the word tajweed? Did the Prophet ever use the word qirat, hafsan azim? Did the Prophet ever use the word balagha, rhetoric? Did the Prophet ever use the word nahu, grammar? Nahu in the time of the Prophet meant like this. So, Suhaib Nahu Fulan, I'm like such and such person. Say in Masr, Yani Zaykid. Nahu. Zaykid? Hadan Nahu. So, there's two important principles you need to remember before we jump into this. Number one is, historically, mainstream scholarship, I don't like to use the word traditional, because I believe now traditional has been turned into a cult. So, people now are traditionalistic. Right? So, it became like a club certain type of style, how you talk, how you look. The tradition is, is huge. As one scholar said, I want the Salafism of Ibn Taymiyyah. I want the Sufism of Al-Ghazali. I want the, the sacrifice of a great woman scholar, Abida Al-Madaniyah, who they used to call her Bint Al-Naqa, because she had so many books that she had to have a camel to move her books to Spain. Like, I want everything of that. And, and oftentimes we project our own personality into people to, to, to give ourselves validation. It's not sincerity, man. I want those mashadib of Islam. Hey, Assalamualaikum. So, the first principle is that, and you want to remember this, it's deep, man, that concern is not given for what you call something. 
concern is for what you mean by it. So you think about America now, today. Terms are used to create reactions. I, I did this once with someone. They're like, you're a Muslim. Like, you know, I don't like Muslims, okay? What does Muslim mean to you? Like, start from there. And then they say something, it's like, that sounds like Michael from Halloween, dude. Like, that ain't me. And you can say, well, as a Muslim, this is what Islam means to me. This is what it means to be a Muslim. You can start from the point of meaning. Maybe they don't listen, but you, you see what happens with people. Oh, you're liberal. Oh, you're conservative. Oh, you're this. Oh, you're that. What does that mean? What do those terms mean? And we now live in what people are calling the age of outrage because postmodernity fractured everybody, split them into pieces, broke us in half with no foundations after modernity gave us hyper-foundationalism to the point where it led to fascism. And now people are mad because everyone values their own identity. To a certain degree, yeah, that's important. But not to the point that it becomes subtle idolatry. Like white supremacy, to me, as a white person, is a form of idolatry. It's a form of supremacy, superiority. I want to be supreme. Azim. So the sheikh is saying, I don't care about what you call it. What do you mean by it? And then we can get into a discussion. Uh, a few weeks ago, I taught, I teach a class um, somewhere, I can't say where, and we had a guest speaker. And he was really brilliant, mashallah. And one of our students, obviously a freshman, uh, tried to ask an intelligent sounding question that just didn't work. So they're trying to use like these big words, man, like interlocutors and you know symbiosis. And I was like, <laughs> so I was like, we talk like this, man. <laughs> like, you know. And then he didn't know what he was saying, right? It's just using big words. It was like funny. I've been there, you know. I've done that. And then the professor said to him at the, this one university, who shall not be named, he said to him like, I don't understand what you mean by the words you're saying. Like, you're just using big words. So the sheikh, he says, I don't care what you call it. So you can call it tasawwuf, you can call it salaf, you can call it aqidah, you can call it iman. It's very imp important that we don't consider terms as innovations, as bid'ah. Ibn Qayyim mentioned six conditions for this. We'll talk about that maybe another time. But one in general is that it shouldn't replace an existing term. Like if there's already an exit, like the Prophet is Rasulullah. It's like we're going to change it to something else. The Qur'an is Qur'an. We're not going to change it to something else. Something that's mentioned in sacred text as being what it is. But in the Qur'an, we don't find a specific definition of what you should call tiskiyut nafs Same thing with Iman. Allah says, O you who believe, call Iman aqidah. It's not there. Right? So a lot of times, terms are reflective of what? Yeah, educator in the back, man. Terms are reflective of what? The context of where you are. So what are your terms for Islam as American Muslims? That's a challenge. When you start making people think this way, they get scared. But Allah calls the Quran a light. So I ask sometimes my students, we did Surah Al-Fatiha, why would the Sahaba have more than 24 names for Surah Al-Fatiha? Because it meant something to them. So I asked a convert sister, hey, what, what's your name for Fatiha? She was like, the flashlight. That's a dope name, man. It's like, it's the flashlight. Like, I used it 
as I was trying to find God as a new Muslim. Fatiha was that flashlight that showed me where to walk. And then people started getting it. Oh, okay. I named this. I named this. So Sheikh is saying, I don't care what you call it. You can call it what you want. The second principle, and it's a little bit more complex, uh, is a tarku laysa bil hujjah. A tarku laysa bil hujjah. What that means is, just because the Prophet didn't do something, doesn't make it a proof for it's for, for it being forbidden. So how many of you heard like, yeah, we're gonna like, we're gonna put on an e party for the kids, and we're gonna invite like a clown, and like, we're gonna bring like a DJ, he's gonna play Amr Diab, maybe a problem there, but you know, he's gonna whatever, he's gonna show up and play some Rayhan, I don't know, got Malaysian brothers here, and sisters, and then people like, the Prophet never had like a clown, and he never had like a celebration, that's a Turk. Like we've all heard this before. The Prophet never did it. Salaf never did it. So therefore it's a proof that it's what? It's forbidden. Every major book of Islamic law mentions this axiom. A tarku laysa bil hujjah. Tarku means to leave, to not do. Laysa is not bi hujjah, a proof. One of our teachers, laysa fi We have a poem where he talks about this. He says, laysa fi You know, the idea that the Prophet didn't do something, or the early generations didn't do something, is not a proof. For being forbidden. There's only three times that a tark leaving something, its understanding is being forbidden. If Allah says, don't do it, like, leave it. لا تفعلوا So, لا تقربوا زنا Don't come close to fornication. So, tark here, there's a hujjah. I should avoid it. Number two, it mentions that this issue will bring about punishment in the hereafter. Like, if you do this, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَأْكُلُونَ أَمْوَالَ الْيَتَامَ ظُلْمًا إِنَّمَا يَأْكُلُونَ فِي بُطُونِهِمْ نَارًا If you were to usurp the property of orphans, You'll burn in hell. <laughs> like, I better leave this alone, man. The third, and it's more complex, is if you have a large majority of jurists say, like, this is forbidden, like smoking. Like, it's better to avoid. Even though the Hanafis, I know, Hanafis be hitting up that hookah pipe. I don't, I, it's your business. Go for the tahfatain bin'ana. Nobody's tripping, right? That's on you. But, what I'm saying is, like the majority are saying, avoid this. What's the evidence for this? That Tark laysa bil hujjah. Anyone know the famous hadith of the Dub? When the Prophet was presented a roasted lizard to eat in Sahih al Bukhari, what did he do? He kindly refused. Like he pulled away. He didn't eat it. And then someone said to him, what? haram uh, ya Rasulullah? Is that haram? He said, la, no. So here, leaving something is not what? A proof that it's haram. You see something here. But sometimes an insecure community, and a community that's been boxed in and put under so much pressure, and then it's been funneled with like, 
political notions of tasawwuf and Salafism on both sides, right, begins to see itself as under siege. And under siege, I ain't got time for exploration, dude. It's about preservation. So I may, and God will reward people for their niyyah, out of being safe, just avoided it. But don't say it's forbidden. So a tark laysa bil hujjah, except in three situations. Number one, a verse says, don't do it. What I told you to avoid, avoid it. Number two is the hadith says, I just quoted. Number two is, it mentions that act in uh, uh, correlation with punishment in the hereafter. Number three, majority, like a large majority, like 70% or so of scholars are saying, no, better to avoid it. In that, there's not a sin, by the way, but it falls into the doubtful. Uh, Habibi. Uh, so on the other side of it, I think we've also, you know, in our tradition, have the notion that if the prophet didn't say something when he saw something problematic, potentially, that is a proof of its being halal. And I'm wondering if that principle also, like, how does that... There's intersectionality there, right? It's like the flip side of it. But, I, like, for me, it's a concern just in, you know, for anyone who's religious... Sometimes you don't necessarily want to call someone out because there's a wisdom to, hey, I'll do this later. It's, it might do more harm. Mm. And I'm wondering, in those kinds of situations, is it the case that if the prophet saw something, he would necessarily have to call it out if it was wrong? Of course, because we have an axiom that says, which means that the prophet not addressing something at the moment that it needed to be addressed is impossible for us to believe. Understand what the principle means? If the Prophet saw something haram, or someone asked him a question that had to be answered at that moment, it's impossible for us to believe in his role as a Prophet that he wouldn't have responded to it. But could it have been that he responded like in secret, or not in secret, but If like the need demanded that it had to be responded at that time, no. If he delayed it, then we understand there was wisdom in it. So, because now hindsight's twenty twenty, so people are going to go back and look at all these instances where people asked the prophet questions, and he answered them immediately. But then there's other instances, like when Omar wanted to cut the head off the hypocrite. He's like, "No, there's wisdom in that." Al Hajj means here, like it needs to be addressed now. Fahad al like impossible, because we talked about it last year. We didn't expand on it in Aqidah. We said that one of the beliefs of about prophets is what tabligh that they taught what had to be taught. The opposite of that is kitman, that they would hide something from people. And that's where Sidi Zaruk says, this notion that Sufis say, yeah, the Prophet hid some knowledge, and he only gave it to a special person, and now I have that special knowledge that no one else knows about. That's some nonsense, man. And that's how you gain unhealthy control of people. No. So yeah, him being silent is considered turk. But here we have a specific example. Like they saw him not eat that lizard. God, thank God he didn't eat that lizard, man. He did not eat that lizard. And they said, is it haram? He said, no, 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 no. You just, it's, not, it's, not, it's not familiar to my city where I'm from. We don't eat lizard. Alayhi salatu salam. So that, that, that text is used to show the proof of what the Prophet left is what? It's permissible. This goes into two areas, and we need to address this before we jump into the book. The first is areas of ibadat, and notions of bid'ah. 
innovation. Everybody okay? Or do we need to take a break? The word bid'a, we need to understand, at least within the Sunni tradition, there have been two schools of thought. From the earliest days, the word bid'a is from bada'a. Allah is badi'a. Abtadi' means to cause something to happen from nothing. So Allah is badi'u samawati wal ard, the one who originates the heavens and the earth. So you can understand something, the definition of bid'a means something that is introduced, that has no precedent. And there are two general types of bid'a. One scholars agree on, one they differ over in two schools within the Sunni tradition. The one that scholars agree on is bid'a in technology. advances in technology as long as it doesn't create harm. So that's why Iran in the early 80s is the first country in the world to say nuclear weapons are forbidden. Because in the, the, the logic of the supreme leader of Iran at that time was like, what the heck is this technology going to accomplish, man? <laughs> like, we can blow up the world 10 times. Oh, mashallah, let's test it out. So in Egypt, when I was studying, we did a, a chapter on istinsakh, cloning. Right? Uh, we did a, a chapter on Dar uh, ifta, on testing met, uh, animals for like shampoo and conditioners and all that stuff. And the general principle is if it's creating harm, emotional or physical harm, should be avoided. But here, the approval of technology. The first, the second, is in issues of worship. And that's where scholars differ. So, technology, human advancement, scholars agree that kind of bid'a, bid'a dunyawiyya, ja'iza. Could even be an obligation. That's why most of the, the fields of study that fall under technology are considered fard kifaya. They're fard. Yeah, question? Yeah, uh, going back to this uh, idea of technology, right? Uh, you know, Facebook's, for example, been in the news recently. Um, around the time these technologies are created, there could be, you know, uncertainty around uh, kind of the negative impact of those sorts of things. Uh, we only find that out. How, how, how does one... So when it comes to issues like that, uh, Sharia is silent, leaves it to the, to the, the, the sermon of the person. One, one thing we'll talk about it maybe in the future, we go to all sort of filter. Sharia is not an encroaching law. It's not up in your business. It says, listen, these are principles live by Ma Salam. Don't screw up. If you screw up, you're gonna get checked. But like, should I have Facebook? Should I have Snapchat? You know, this I don't I don't mean it as yeah. much should you have yeah. like engage with I mean let's say you want to found a company, a social media company, right? And we're only finding out years later the negative yeah, that the foundation of business is permissibility. It goes back kind of what we said earlier. It, it, it's, it's not going to step in. So maybe what someone would do is as they're founding this business and scaffolding it, their incubator is growing, be in contact with Sharia scholars. Hey, I have this question. 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 I remember when uh, a famous singer in the Arab world now, Nasheed artist, 
I lived in Egypt at that time. He got really famous. And they went to a scholar in Syria. Like they traveled from England to Syria to talk to this scholar. They could have just gone to a scholar in England, but anyways. So they went to this famous scholar and they said like, hey, we're gonna like do, they showed him the video of Asma al-Husna, uh, Sami Yusuf, right? And then they asked him like, what do you think about this? And he said, at this time, I don't know, this is, your, this is what you do, but like, I'll follow you. And then through the process, you continue to ask me questions, but I'm not gonna give you a blanket answer, man. So often, oftentimes, and that's why sometimes the community may get frustrated, scholarship is, is it's, it's like very similar to the legal system here. It doesn't want to jump into everything. It wants people to make decisions for themselves. But let, let's stay focused. Sorry. Awesome question, man. So the first is like innovations in technology. Those things are commendable, alhamdulillah. With some conditions that they don't create harm. On the environment or on people or on animals or creation, so on and so forth. The second is innovations in religion. And that's where you have two schools in the Sunni world. Historically, so I, inshallah, in like 10 minutes. Okay, like 10 minutes, inshallah? So, in that area, we had two schools traditionally. One is that any innovation in acts of worship is completely forbidden. And this is the school initially founded of Imam Malik, although his madhab differs with him. He himself, based on the statement of the Prophet, every innovation, religious innovation, will lead people astray. And this now becomes kind of the mantra of uh, contemporary Salafism. So, like, don't hate the Salafis if they have this opinion. This is something that's founded within the tradition. It's easy to hate people. It's hard to have a conversation with people. But there's support for this. They have dalil for this. They have an understanding for this. Whether we agree with them or not, that doesn't matter. The second is the, and, and that's a minority, by the way, of Sunni scholars through history. The minority adopted this opinion of Imam Malik. The second is the school of Imam Shafi'i. Sayyidina Imam Shafi'i says, every bid'ah is an innovation in acts of worship unless it has a general proof from Quran and Sunnah. Ta'seel. Talked about it earlier. Explicit or implicit evidence. So for example, and this goes back to the axiom about a tark bil-hujjah. When people gather together to read the Quran in a mosque, according to Imam Malik's opinion and those who follow him, this will be an innovation. Wasn't done by the early generations. According to the school of Imam Shafi'i and the majority of Matahib, all four Matahib, this is not an innovation because Allah encourages us to recite the Quran. The Prophet said, no, no people will gather together in one of the masajid and recite the Quran together. So they have some evidence supporting the generality of that practice. You see what's happening? When Allah says in the Quran, remember Allah. And the Prophet ﷺ, he comes from Rukur and he said, Allahu liman hamida. And that Bedouin behind him said what? Rabbana hamdan kathiran tayyiban mubarakan fi. That person added that. And then after the salah, the Prophet said, Who said that? 
And the guy got scared. He's like, it was me. The Prophet didn't sanction him. So they're going to say this is an evidence for acting on a general principle. Even though it may not be specifically defined by the sacred law. It's generally defined. This is important as we get ready to jump into his text. Because I want you, whether you agree with the first or second, it's not, that's not my concern. You're not going to be wrong. But we don't have a right to demonize the other person. Because both have their support. But the sheikh is of the second school. So things that have a general, explicit or implicit sanction, he's going to recognize as being something acceptable. So three things we talked about, mashallah, I said a little heavy on the theory, so forgive me. But it's important for you to know these things. And investigate and come back and tell me, hey, you messed up. Okay, no problem. It's not an issue for me. I'm not perfect. Is number one, we talked about what? <laughs> Who knows? Yes. Exactly. So convert, revert. Why are people fighting over that? We used to play a game in Boston. We had 2,000 converts, mashallah, like three or four years. We used to say like, oh, mashallah, today Rebecca accepted Islam. And then she's like, I'm so happy to be a convert. And then we'd be like, the, the max we ever got to is 22 mashallahs. We used to count them, man. Mashallah, 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 mashallah. Then 23? Well, actually, sister, you didn't convert. You reverted. And then people start going at it. And one time someone actually wrote, I'm so sorry I converted or reverted. I didn't, mean to, I didn't mean to be like the catalyst of these internal problems in the Muslim community, right? Nobody cares what you call it. Accepting faith, convert, revert. Nobody got time for that just in Arabic. Like, you can call it food, you can call it fava beans. Nobody cares. Meat shawarma. Nobody cares. But for some reason in religion, when you use a different term, people get sensitive. The second thing is that the Prophet and his companions not doing something is not in itself a proof unless those three things I mentioned are present. So now, like, if you want to do something, I remember care, when care first started. People were like, man, the Prophet didn't do care. Like, what are you, Prophet didn't do Maghrib? Like, what are you talking about, man? Right, now you can see kind of the insanity. That's why Imam Shafi'i said something very powerful. He said, foolish is the person who thinks that just because the Prophet and the Sadaf didn't do, do something, they shouldn't do it. We're going to talk about that later on, inshallah. And then the third was the idea of bid'ah. And that within Sunni tradition, you've had two opinions, both rooted in evidences. When the Prophet says to Sayyidina Bilal, hey, I hear your footsteps in paradise. Why? And Sayyidina Bilal says, every time I make wudu, I what? I pray. As much ma katab Allahuli, whatever Allah has prescribed for me. Did the Prophet say to Bilal, stuff Allah, I never did that. See something now. But then he praised him for it. So this is a, an ishtihad of Bilal based on a, this is Bilal's personal decision based on the general evidences that encourage us to what? To pray. So the Prophet doesn't sanction him. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam.
when Sayyidina Uthman introduces the second Adhan for Jum'ah, did anyone call him an innovator? When Sayyidina Abdullah bin Umar, the long takbir that you make in Eid, there's two versions, right? The short version and the long version. You know who the long version came from? Abdullah bin Umar. Related in the Sunan of Imam Abu Dawood. Did anyone say to Abdullah bin Umar, you're a mubtadi, an innovator? When Abu Huraira said, I wash and I extend the washing of wudu because the light of wudu. Did anyone say to him, this is innovation? Nobody said to him, that's innovation. So you see there's evidences for both sides. There's no need to divide and destroy our community over something that has historically been in our community. Inshallah, we're going to break for salah, and then we'll take a few minutes. People can get some coffee, whatever. We'll come back and start like that clock is not working. So we will start around 1 o'clock, 1.50. Uh, if you need to get some coffee or whatever, freshen up, do some blurpees, I don't know. And then we're going to start with the text and begin with the principles of how he's going to argue the notion of what Sufism is and how it's founded. And then inshallah we'll, we'll continue from there. Barakallahu feekum wa jazakum khairan wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa alaykum wa rahmatullah.